Welcome to your weekly constitutional, underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Your host is Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at the Duncan School of Law of Lincoln Memorial University. Eric Merriam is an associate professor of legal studies and political science at the University of Central Florida. Recently, he published a paper in the Dickinson Law Review with an interesting title, Fire, Aim, Ready, Militarizing Animus, Unit Cohesion, and the Transgender Ban. When you see a title like that, you got to have the guy on the show. Hi, well, thanks so much for having me. My name is uh, Eric Merriam. I'm an associate professor at the University of Central Florida, where I teach in both the legal studies and political science departments. My areas of scholarship are constitutional law and national security law. And how do we know each other? It seems we have a friend in common. I don't know if we want to call him a friend or not, but yes, uh, I'm a former colleague of Professor Doug McKechnie, who I believe is the First Amendment guru for your program. We call Uh, him the First uh, Amendment guy. Yeah, he's been on many times. He and I were both professors together at the Air Force Academy years ago. And I, every time I'm reminded of that, it always still is an element of surprise for me that the Air Force Academy has law professors at it. But as I always tell Doug, I'm glad they do, because when you're giving yes. people... Yeah, I mean, we're going to give the Air Force officers uh, nuclear weapons and airplanes to deliver them with and missiles and other things. And I really want them to know about the law and how they are uh, subject to civilian control. And that's a very important constitutional concept. And it's uh, one of the concepts that we get into uh, at the Air Force Academy, or I did when I was there, in the mandatory course. In fact, you can major in law at both the Air Force Academy and at the Military Academy at West Point. But also, every single cadet has to take a semester-long three-credit law class. And one of those principal topics of discussion is, of course, civilian control of the military. I am so grateful for that. So well done both to you and to Doug. And it was Doug, in fact, who alerted me to your new article with a really compelling title. What is it? Fire, aim, ready. Fire, aim, ready. (laughs) And in that order. Uh, And then the subtitle is Militarizing Animus, Unit Cohesion and the Transgender Ban, referring, of course, to the uh, Trump administration's ban on service by transgender persons uh, announced by Twitter in the summer of 2017. Well, I know that word animus, but why don't you tell us where it comes from? So animus is the concept in the area of constitutional law we call equal protection. Of course, the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment says that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And we know that the federal government is not a state, but the Supreme Court in a series of cases beginning in Bowling versus Sharp way back in 1954 said that the uh, principles of equal protection apply also to the federal government through the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. So that's a perhaps a little bit more technical than we need to be. But uh, the concept of animus is a fairly new concept in equal protection. If I can just before we leave Boeing versus Sharp, before we do Boeing versus Sharp, you mentioned that and you mentioned that so-called reverse incorporation. And we do have a lot of constitutional nerds who listen. So let's take a moment. Um, You know, the equal protection clause begins with the words no state shall. So if you want a straight textual or even a historical analysis, it was aimed squarely at the states because it was some states, at least, that were systematically denying protection to African-Americans through the institution of slavery and later Jim Crow. Um, On the other hand, what law, what part of the Constitution says that that still applies to the United States government, the national government? And the story I always heard, and I can't verify this, but was that Earl Warren was in the the final stages of of, of issuing this opinion and uh, simply made the statement um, that, uh, you know, know, it was was a federal district, right? It was D.C. versus Bowling, wasn't it? That's right. Right. And so how can you apply the Equal Protection Clause? And the story goes, he basically said, ah, we'll just go backward through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and say that that makes it applicable to the feds. Is that the way it happened? That's my understanding as well. That, That is actually my understanding. Of course, Bowling versus Sharp was a companion case to Brown versus Board, right. which was going to rely solely on equal protection to announce that uh, the school public school segregation was unconstitutional in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And basically, they needed to come to the same conclusion uh, in the case involving D.C. public schools, and and that was the way Chief Justice Warren figured out to do it. <laughs> and it, I think it's illustrative of his jurisprudence generally, although he is very respected and even revered in liberal circles and equally despised in conservative circles, I don't think anyone 
called him a great constitutional scholar. I think he was very results-oriented and guided by his own sense of justice and injustice more than he was by constitutional doctrine. And was able to rule with a uh, with a, a strong fist. There's significant indication that Brown versus Board was not originally headed towards being a unanimous opinion. And other uh, times throughout uh, Chief Justice Warren's chiefdom, that was apparently the case. And, and he kind of browbeat some other justices into uh, issuing a unanimous opinion. The only other chief justice I can think of who had similar sway over his colleagues was John Marshall, often considered the most important chief justice in our history. But Earl right. Warren, Earl Warren was a strong leader as well, and uh, a, a very important one, whether you like his uh, his uh, policies and his rulings or not. But anyway, I couldn't let that one pass without uh, sharing sure. that, sharing that anecdote. But okay, pick up from there. So the concept of animus and equal protection goes back to the fifties. Well, the concept of equal protection applying to the federal government does. Uh -huh. The concept of animus is actually somewhat newer, uh, and we really see the idea of animus first arising in the early nineteen seventies in the Department of Agriculture versus Moreno case uh, that many of us law nerds are quite familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that case, the Supreme Court uh, was evaluating a constitutional challenge to the Food Stamp Act, which disqualified households with uh, two or more unrelated individuals living in the same house, two or more unrelated adults living in the same house from receiving food stamp benefits. So it was aimed at ostensibly reducing fraud but uh, along the way to passing the Food Stamp Act, uh, a couple legislators on the floor while, while discussing the bill referred to hippies and hippie communes. And uh, the Supreme Court saw that legislative history and basically decided that the, the real purpose behind the Food Stamp Act was actually a, quote, congressional desire to harm a politically unpopular group, close quote. And what the court said in Moreno is that uh, if, and I'm quoting now, if the constitutional conception of equal protection of the laws means anything, it must at the very least mean that a bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group cannot constitute a legitimate government interest. And the Supreme Court struck down that Food Stamp Act because of the use of the word hippie in the floor debate uh, about the bill. Uh, and that's where we, that's kind of the birth of this concept of animus. So just take one step back, the, the, what we call traditional equal protection jurisprudence has usually, and you mentioned already that the, uh, the kind of equal protection clause arrives in the constitution in the form of the 14th amendment, which is ratified in 1868, immediately after the conclusion of the civil war, it arrives initially at least to ensure, uh, the equal protection of the laws for African-Americans. The way it, uh, equal protection developed over the years was a focus on government classification. So if the government is treating different groups of people differently, the Supreme Court's going to look at that, or, or the judiciary, and uh, really over time, despite what the language of the text of the 14th Amendment sounds like, which is a flat prohibition on treating different groups of people differently, we get the reverse, which is that the Supreme Court in essence says, so long as the government is acting rationally, to uh, accomplish a legitimate interest, it's okay to treat different groups of people differently. And so we can think of the classic examples of that, you know, my 11 year old is not allowed to drive a car uh, and that's a good thing, uh, but she is certainly being treated differently than people who are of age who are permitted to drive a car. What we see in the traditional equal protection jurisprudence is a focus on classification and whether or not that classification is quote unquote suspect or not. The most suspicious, if you will, type basis of classification is uh, race. So classifications based on race are suspect, and the court applies strict scrutiny to those kind of classifications. If the government is making a run-of-the-mill distinction between people over 16 and people under 16 for driver's licenses, or whether it refuses to, to give a driver's license, for example, to a blind person, or, you know, makes a different, uh, taxes different people or different business entities at different rates. Um, those are all run-of-the-mill distinctions between groups of people, but they're typically allowed, as you say, as long as there's a, a reasonable purpose and there's a, ra a legitimate purpose and a rational relationship to the government's goal. And uh, that's a very low bar. That means most of those distinctions are going to be allowed, despite uh, uh, someone making a claim that it violates equal protection. But certain groups of people... Uh, have been historically discriminated against based on something typically called an immutable or unchangeable characteristic. And so, as you say, the classic example is race. 
And indeed, historically, it's very clear that that's what the 14th Amendment was about to begin with. And so if the government differentiates people on the basis of race, um, however we define that these days, then the government's going to have to pass a very high bar, and it's going to have to show. It has the burden of showing two things. First, that it has not just a legitimate purpose, but a compelling purpose. And that secondly, what it's doing is the least restrictive way of achieving that purpose. And it's often been said that uh, strict scrutiny is strict in theory, but fatal in practice, that the government almost always loses. Right. And that seems to be the case as it relates to race. Uh, The Supreme Court has only ever found two compelling interests that permit the government to discriminate based on race, and those are to remedy prior instances of discrimination by law. Affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Or the affirmative action that takes place in the context of education, which is to achieve diversity in the context of higher education. Those are the only two instances in which the Supreme Court has said, yes, it is okay government for you to discriminate based on race. And, so we have and, and by, the, by, by the way, those, those rulings are very much in doubt, and their, their longevity is with the current court. But that's how narrowly they've been interpreted in the past. I mean, those are the only exceptions. Okay, please go on. Right. Okay, and so that's how uh, the, the initial, as we've said a couple times now, the focus uh, of, the, of the protection clause initially on race. That's what the Supreme Court initially focuses on in terms of these suspect classifications. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court added sex-based classifications as what it sometimes refers to as quasi-suspect classification. And what that means is that when the government's discriminating based on sex, sometimes referred to as gender, that the government has to meet intermediate scrutiny. So the test is somewhat different. And that test is that the government has to be trying to accomplish an important, rather than compelling, important government interest, and that the classification, in other words, the discrimination based on sex, has to be substantially related to accomplishing that important government interest. So what the Supreme Court has essentially set up is a, is a three-tier system. The top tier, the top level of, of uh, classification and the strictest scrutiny the courts are going to apply applies to race discrimination or race classifications. Sex classifications are intermediate, and the reason they are somewhat less than race, even though initially the Supreme Court considered applying strict scrutiny to sex-based discriminations as well, and articulated in a plurality opinion that it would in Frontiera versus Richardson before backing off of that and establishing intermediate scrutiny in Craig versus Boren a few years later. The reason is that unlike race, where it's very difficult to imagine any legitimate or non-invidious reason why you might want to distinguish among people based on race, Supreme Court has recognized, okay, there are some differences between the sexes that might, in, on, in some occasions, uh, justify discriminating based on sex. But as you point and out, then, that was a 1970s-era decision, and it was right. co- controversial at the time that the gender-based discrimination was not given strict scrutiny. Uh, as my good friend and, and uh, feminist and voting rights expert or suffrage, women's suffrage expert Wanda Sobieski insists that uh, women just get sort of half constitutional protection. Um, and so even to this day, people question that. And I wonder if, if ultimately the court may actually elevate gender discrimination to strict scrutiny because the, as time goes on, there are fewer and fewer seeming justifications for treating women differently. The, you know, the standard one used to be uh, military service, but <laughs> I think we've changed that perception. Right, absolutely. Uh, and so that, that might be also endangered in the future, um, and women might get, uh, Wanda may finally get her full, complete constitutional equality. So. And back, that's right, back when, and, and not only half, half equality, but, or, or half the rights, but also uh, women seem to get them later. Right. So we see the uh, That's what the, my the wife, oh, but my wife always tells me that. Yeah. So in the 70s, in fact, then attorney Ginsburg, now, of course, Justice Ginsburg, uh, argued for strict scrutiny when she argued cases before the court, suggesting that, that sex should be treated like race in terms of uh, being suspicious of the government classifying in that way. And one of the theories, uh, in fact, beyond a theory, one uh, of the cases, uh, several justices were anticipating that the Equal Rights Amendment, which was at the time uh, in through going through the ratification process, was going to get ratified and that they didn't really need to establish strict scrutiny for uh, d- discrimination based on sex because the Equal Rights Amendment was going to accomplish that shortly anyway. So let's let the people uh, do it through the amendment process. Uh, of course, we know that that never happened. It's your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week it's all about banning transgender people from the military. Stick around.
You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week my guest is Eric Merriam, who used to teach at the United States Air Force Academy and has recently written a law review article about the transgender ban in the military. Just before the break, we were talking about the Equal Protection Clause and how it never really protected women to the same degree as it did minorities, racial minorities. And part of that reason was because people thought back in the 70s that we were going to get the Equal Rights Amendment for women, which, of course hasn't happened so far. Though I have to interject, we just recently did a show on uh, the continuing attempts to right. get, get the necessary states to ratify that. So that, that issue is lurking out there as well. But please continue. All right. So in the 70s, we both get this new tier of classification and this the birth of this idea in Moreno that it's not okay for the government to discriminate when its purpose for discrimination is dislike. That's animus. It's this notion that dislike of a disfavored group uh, is an insufficient basis for distinguishing between that group and others in terms of treatment under the law. So that's the beginning. Moreno starts this concept of animus. Another case that's it's important, it's not always talked about in, the, uh, in discussions of animus because it doesn't use the word animus, but there was a case in the early 80s called Palmore versus Sadati. That one actually comes out of Florida, where I am now. Uh, and, and in that case, a family court judge had awarded sole custody of a child to the child's father because the child's mother was an in, in an interracial marriage. And the court, the trial court, the family court, was worried that the child of an interracial marriage would be subjected to disdain in the community. Again, this is the early 80s, so this idea that you know your, your mom is one race and your dad is another race in this, in this uh, interracial marriage, that's going to be bad for the child. And of course, applying the best interest of the child standard, as, as family court judges are supposed to do in deciding custody, the trial judge awarded custody to the father who is not in an interracial marriage. Well, the Supreme Court said that violated the Equal Protection Clause too. Why? Quote, private biases may be outside the reach of the law, but the law cannot directly or indirectly give them effect. Close quote. So the idea here is the law cannot codify or cement private biases. We can't just import uh, people's private stereotype, people's private biases, and call it law. Let's pause there, Eric, because I've always found that a fascinating case. Because I'll have to genuinely admit, I think there were arguments on both sides. I mean, as you say, the standard is the best interest of the child. And if all the judge was doing was trying to look at the situation and all of its factors and say, where is this child going to be happiest? Where is this child going to have the, the least troublesome childhood? Uh, you know, I recognize racism in society exists and the mother is in an interracial relationship. And I just think this kid is going to get rocks thrown at him. I think this kid is going to get teased on the playground and won't have as many friends as he otherwise would have. So if you purely look only for what's right for this particular child in this particular situation, I think the judge had a point. But the court said ultimately that even if that's true, and even though the best interests of the child are paramount in custody cases, effectively what the government through the court system would be doing was in some sense ratifying the racism of the community in which this child was going to live if he lived with his mother and her um, African-American partner. So that was a very important point, and that I, I think it represents an even greater recognition uh, that animus is not to be allowed however it creeps into the courtroom. That's right, and even if the government actor, as you just mentioned, is the judicial branch, right? Mm -hmm. In this instance, this isn't the, you know, the legislature or the governor imposing some private bias for, the, for political gain or something. This is the, this is the judiciary. And, and again, not saying necessarily that the judge himself or herself was uh, racist, but was just recognizing the existence of racism and racial prejudice in the community and, and trying to uh, divine what the best interest of the child was given the existence of that. And the court says no. We are not going to, uh, as you say, ratify uh, private prejudice or private bias. So that's an important case that relates to the – and they, they do that based on the Equal Protection Clause. And that's an important case in this the development of what I call the animus doctrine 
The next big case comes one year later. It's the one that most people learn in law school as being kind of the, the genesis of the animus concept of equal protection, and that's Cleburne versus Cleburne Living Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, just very quickly, that's the case in which the Supreme Court held that the Cleburne City Council, Cleburne, Texas, violated the Equal Protection Clause by denying a permit to the Cleburne Living Center, which was a group home, a group home for mentally disabled persons. And what the Supreme Court determined was that the reason the Cleburne City Council denied the permit was because of the objections of community members. Why? Because they didn't want mentally disabled people in their neighborhood. That calling on the notion from Palmore that we're not going to allow private biases to be be given effect by the law in Cleburne, uh, the, the Supreme Court said that, it, that it, was, it was an irrational prejudice against the mentally disabled and that the court determined it's immaterial whether the irrational prejudice belonged to the city council members or if they were just accomplishing what their constituents wanted. In other words, they were just acquiescing to the city residents' stereotypes and prejudices and fears of the intellectually disabled. In any event, the court says you can't do that. It's important because uh, the, the, the plaintiffs in that case actually argued for a, a classification-based analysis, which is mentally classifications based on mental disability ought to get some form of heightened scrutiny too, just like race and sex that we've already talked about. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to apply some level of heightened scrutiny to classifications based on mental disability. And yet the court still struck down the law, the permitting decision by the city council, uh, because of this concept of animus. You know, I've always felt Since, that that made it a much stronger opinion, and it paved the way for some several cases I know you're about to discuss, but I thought it made it a much stronger opinion because, I mean, isn't it the ultimate condemnation by a court by looking uh, litigants in the eye and saying, you're just doing this because you hate these people, and that's unconstitutional? That, that was a very, very important decision. And by the way, whenever I discuss this case in my introductory constitutional law class, I relate the fact that although I never took a, a land use or planning class uh, in, uh, in law school, much of my practice in Florida, where you are now back in the 90s, involved those issues. And those, far from being boring, are some of the most passionate cases out there. And it frequently, these sorts of fears and these sorts of prejudices uh, are evident in the legislative record. So this is highly, highly relevant to everyday life in every town USA. Right, because we're talking about the things that affect your backyard, right? The NIMBY uh, nature of people's uh, opposition. Uh, you know, it's fine to have a, a group home in our community so long as it's not, you know, next to my house. Right. And, and you're absolutely right. The passion that gets aroused when, 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 uh, when you start getting close to home uh, in a literal sense uh, is, is interesting and, and prevalent in the law. So Cleburne's an interesting marker uh, because a number of scholars at the time uh, thought that perhaps the court would, in fact, find that classifications based on uh, mental disability would get some kind of heightened scrutiny, some kind of additional uh, judicial look. And the Supreme Court chose not to go that direction, even though it had a case that would perfectly have allowed it to do so. Um, importantly, and, and this is where I kind of want to talk more broadly about animus doctrine in general, um, since that case, 1985, the Supreme Court has not created or identified a new classification that gets heightened scrutiny. So we still have race and national origin. We still have sex and also one we haven't talked about, which is legitimacy, fairly infrequent cases. Uh, Non-marital children, right. Right, correct. Uh, and, and other than that, we're, we have this rational basis review, which is this incredibly easy standard for the courts to meet. So since 1985, in none of the cases in which People, uh, plaintiffs have advanced new classifications for which they believe the court should apply heightened scrutiny of some type. The court has has uh, not, has not taken them up on that in any case. So uh, since basically uh, the early 80s, uh, the Supreme Court hasn't used its quote unquote classification approach to uh, to to rule. Uh, that some law violated equal protection. And although so this it, it, it's, some, it's impossible to say exactly why that is, but I think is. I, but I think most people probably who, who watch the court probably share uh, my perception that you know during that time from basically from actually the early 70s forward, the court has gotten more and more conservative 
and part of that conservatism is uh, less concern about individual rights or certainly less concern about uh, allowing judicial relief for them and perhaps more deference to state and national legislatures in these areas. Um, and that's an important thing to, to remember is that the period of time you're talking about is not uh, a return to Warren Court relatively liberal jurisprudence. It's the court in general going the opposite direction. And I think that's what makes your, your argument about animus um, all the more compelling. So please pick up the thread there. Sure. And, and the uh, scholars who've started kind of articulating this animus doctrine, which is this notion uh, that the court's real concern as it relates to equal protection uh, over the last three decades uh, has really been only in instances where it detects some kind of impermissible purpose going on rather than focusing itself on what the classification is itself. In other words, is it a racial classification or is it a sex classification? The court seems to only be concerned in the last few decades when it it smells something rotten. In other words, it's, it, it, it discerns an impermissible dislike, a, a attempt to harm uh, a particular group. And I'm kind of a, a little bit late to the, to the party uh, in terms of the animus doctrine scholarship, but several scholars uh, over the last decade have noticed this, this shift away from classification-based approach uh, and have suggested that really animus is, is the primary I hate to use the pun here, animating principle of, uh, of equal protection doctrine today. Um, in addition to your observation uh, that the court is more conservative and perhaps less likely to identify uh, new classifications, and that certainly goes back to the 70s, as mm -hmm. soon as it becomes it switches from the Warren Court to the Burger Court, we start seeing new classifications. And sex is is a is a an outlier, but we start seeing new classifications being advanced as meriting heightened scrutiny and the court striking them down. So age gets uh, rational basis review rather than heightened scrutiny. Wealth based classifications meet the same fate. Uh, the court uh, there again, the Burger Court says no. Wealth based classifications. Uh, are, are just going to get rational basis review as well. Uh, so picking up with animus, Cleburne sets the stage for the idea that uh, the attempt to harm a particular group of people is unconstitutional because it violates equal protection. The next case we see after Cleburne comes a decade later in Romer versus Evans, uh, and that of course is the case in which uh, Colorado passed a state constitutional amendment, which essentially uh, removed sexual orientation from the list of protected uh, classes. So what does that mean? So if the city of Boulder, Colorado has a law that says we do not discriminate based on, and fill in the blank, age, national origin, sex, veteran status, and if sexual orientation was on the list, as it was in Boulder, Colorado at the time, that got removed by the amendment. In other words, Colorado Amendment 2 disallowed governments from specially protecting sexual orientation as a class, or people who have minority sexual orientations, if you will. So uh, the Supreme Court in Romer versus Evans, this is Justice Kennedy now writing, applies the same principle and says, hey, this amendment, this amendment to imposes a broad and undifferentiated disability on one group of people, and only one group of people, that is homosexual people. And he says, this law is both too narrow and too broad at the same time, and is thus inexplicable by anything but animus toward the class that it affects. In other words, as I was just suggesting, Justice Kennedy does not say, well, classifications based on sexual orientation should get heightened scrutiny. What he does say is when it's animus that seems to be the reason, the motivating factor behind the government discrimination with government classification, that's unconstitutional. And this has been referred to both starting, kind of starting with Cleburne and going forward as an additional tier of scrutiny, something some people call rational basis plus or rational basis with bite. Uh, but the, the kind of animus doctrine scholars are saying, well, it's not really a different classification. What it really is is just saying there's another basis uh, for striking down a law as being uh, unconstitutional because it violates the Equal Protection Clause. Let's talk a little bit about Romer versus Evans. I think this is probably the single most important individual rights case that is least known by the public. In fact, even in the area of gay rights, people always go and talk about Lawrence versus Texas, which essentially declared so-called sodomy statutes unconstitutional. 
Um, that one gets all of the press, and that's, uh, you know, people, I think, perhaps uh, focus upon some imagined salacious details from the case. But Romer versus Evans was the one where Justice Kennedy, a guy who considered himself and for the most part was a fairly conservative guy, was so appalled by what he saw in the state of Colorado, and it bears repeating, not only did this constitutional amendment, this was a, di a direct exercise of popular democracy in a sovereign state within our union, uh, the people of Colorado essentially undid all protections for sexual orientation in Colorado and then prevented people, even in localities, from reenacting those things. And so essentially said, you know, people who are in favor of gay rights in Colorado cannot effectively change the law, even in their localities, without first amending the constitution of the state. And in one respect, this was such a total victory for those people who were opposed to gay rights. Uh, it was basically stomping gay rights into the soil of Colorado that uh, Justice Kennedy and the majority said, this is appalling and the only reason we can think you're doing this to these people is because you hate them and that's unconstitutional. I think that has to be one of the most uh, one of the most strong denunciations of hatred and bigotry in all of the Supreme Court canon. I, I think you're absolutely right and I think the reason perhaps is my own theory so why it hasn't gotten quite as much uh, uh, discussion, as, as for example, you talk about Windsor, is that the, the reason or the explanation by Justice Kennedy for why this was unconstitutional, why it violated equal protection, is, is somewhat technical in that it, it was not based on uh, a classification. It was not based on, uh, uh, you know, it's not fair to treat these uh, a particular group of people differently uh, in the direct sense, such as in Lawrence versus Texas, where uh, homosexual persons were not allowed to engage in sodomy while heterosexual persons were, which seems you know, quite unfair. Uh, here, it's a, it's a law. It's kind of a legal structure that is uh, engaging in discrimination. This notion, as you mentioned, that unlike every other group in Colorado, including people with blue eyes or people who like to hike or any classification or group you can imagine, homosexual people were prevented from securing from their local governments or from state government protection against classification, and only homosexual persons were prevented from doing so. And, uh, and, and so, I, it, you know, it's the law, the kind of the technical element, I think, of, of why Amendment 2 was uh, so pernicious that maybe causes us not to talk about Romer as much, but I couldn't agree more. Romer uh, is a huge development, and particularly for this concept of animus, which is that is the basis for the opinion in Romer versus evidence. Which is why I always tell my students that if you believe in gay rights, go out to the store, get yourself a portrait of Justice Kennedy, frame it, and put it on your wall, because I think he has to be among the greatest champions of gay rights in the history of the court, maybe the greatest. Mm -hmm. It's Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week I'm speaking with Eric Merriam, who's a professor at the University of Central Florida and who's written a law review article recently about the transgender ban in the military. Stick around. Now it's time to finish our discussion with Eric Merriam of the University of Central Florida, formerly of the United States Air Force Academy, who's written an article recently about the transgender ban in the military. Before the break, we were talking about Justice Anthony Kennedy, who is probably the greatest champion of gay rights in the history of the United States Supreme Court. No doubt about it. And, and uh, you know, he writes the four key gay rights opinions. He writes the majority opinion in, in all four of them. So Romer's, of course, the first one. Lawrence, you just mentioned, is the second one. There's an element of, of concern about animus in, in Lawrence. But Lawrence is really uh, more about due process, substantive due process, mm -hmm. than it is about equal protection. Justice O'Connor, for example, in a concurrence in Lawrence versus Texas in 2003 said, uh, that she thought it should have been just
just decided based on equal protection principles alone. In other words, you're treating homosexual people who want to engage in sodomy different than heterosexual people who want to engage in sodomy, and that's inappropriate. She thought that equal protection by itself was uh, sufficient. Kennedy disagreed and, and thought that substantive due process was an important element of uh, of why the law in Texas that banned homosexual sodomy only was uh, a constitutional violation of the of, of liberty. You mentioned substantive due process, and that's another one of those very sticky doctrines, and we don't have time to go into it here. But essentially what the court was saying, uh, although it never said it explicitly, and there are people who are still you know, disagree with this interpretation, was that you and I and everybody else in this country has a fundamental individual right, even though it may not be mentioned specifically in the Constitution, to engage in consensual adult sexual activity without government interference. It's a different way of looking at the same situation. Equal protection analysis probably would have centered on your animus theory, but there are many, many cases where both, either or both of those theories are used in combination. That's right, and there's uh, and, and there's good reason for that. Obergefell, the kind of the, the latest and perhaps most profound uh, opinion that Justice Kennedy wrote in terms of uh, advancing gay rights, of course the, the same-sex marriage case. Uh, in Obergefell, he he uses and intertwines uh, substantive due process and equal protection uh, quite a bit to to the derision of the dissenters and some scholars and to the delight of others. But in any event, the notion that equal protection and, and due process are intertwined is, is absolutely correct. One of the interesting things about Lawrence and one of the explanations for why Justice Kennedy didn't rely solely on equal protection, as Justice O'Connor uh, suggested that the majority should have, is this notion of positive versus negative rights. And we'll go into it for too much here, but uh, traditionally, uh, negative rights, which means the right to be free from government interference, have been uh, distinguished from positive rights, which means the right to something from the government. And usually the Equal Protection Clause has been used to, to protect positive rights, that right to something from the government, while the Due Process Clause, this notion of substantive due process, has been used to protect negative rights, meaning the right to be free from government interference. And the concern that some people have suggested was really underlying Justice Kennedy's opinion is, if it had been only based on equal protection, Texas's response could have been, okay, then sodomy is illegal for everyone. Huh. And that would not have violated equal protection, and yet it still would have left homosexual people without the right to engage uh, w without being worried about criminal sanction in consensual sexual activity. And so that it's this notion of leveling up, if you will, rather than allowing states to level down that some people have offered as an explanation for why due process is, is perhaps a better way to vindicate some rights than equal protection alone. It's a very interesting thing, and this is public radio, so we're not going to go into detail. But I'll simply say that so-called sodomy statutes, some of which are very explicit in what they're outlawing, and some of which are ridiculously vague, involve activities that probably heterosexuals have done to virtually the same degree as homosexuals have done. I mean, there are only so many things a human body can do, and a lot of people do them. And so the sort of statute that was struck down in Texas was aimed at homosexual sodomy. But if it had been made into one that was more broad, um, how, how many, I will sometimes say, and I don't want to show of hands, but how many people in this room uh, would be instant felons? People do these things, and that, I think, is the essential point that was made, is that maybe the government has no business regulating those sorts of intimate activities. Right. And in fact, Justice O'Connor, very delicately, and I, I don't remember the quote exactly off the top of my head, made the point you just made in her concurrence in Lawrence, and basically said, I'm not too worried about uh, whether Texas just decides to impose criminal liability on everyone for engaging in sodomy. In fact, uh, such a law would not long stand in our democratic society, uh, kind of uh, delicately suggesting that if everybody was prohibited from engaging in sodomy, that law would go away. <laughs> Could very well. Okay, on, 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 <laughs> so, to the, on to the next case. On to the next case. So we're, we're soon arriving uh, to, to present day. And uh, I, I don't want to get into too much detail. In United States versus Windsor, there are a lot of different elements of that case. That's the case in which the Supreme Court, again, Justice Kennedy writing from the majority, struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. For our purposes here in, in relation to animus, uh, the key uh, part of that decision is that Justice Kennedy found that the quote-unquote purpose and effect of the Defense of Marriage Act was to, quote, disparage and injure those whom the state, by its marriage laws, sought to protect in personhood and dignity, close quote. And so what, what he's saying essentially is there are some states out there who've decided that people should be allowed to marry someone of the same sex, and here comes the federal government 
deciding that it doesn't like same-sex marriage and people who engage in same-sex marriage. And through the Defense of Marriage Act, it is taking away the dignity of those people who some states have said do have the right to marry someone of the same sex. So once again, we see animus as a key part of the equal protection aspect of the Windsor case in which the Defense of Marriage Act gets struck down. Again, this notion is that the court is unwilling to allow uh, discrimination or classifications, if you will, when the group that's being harmed is being harmed not because of some incidental uh, uh, thing, but rather it being harmed because of dislike by the government. Right. So that's the central concept of animus, and uh, and that's kind of where we arrive today with my argument in in the. Well, you, uh, wait, wait a minute. Just, just, to, just to put them just to put them in order, Obergefell is the big one. That's the one that, that reason, but it built upon all the previous ones, and that's the right. one, of course, so the, that said that, that states cannot deny uh, same-sex marriages. That's right, and so Obergefell, very important, and we can talk about it if you like. Uh, not central to the concept of animus uh, per se, because really Justice Kennedy kind of makes it fairly clear he thinks that he's establishing uh, or reestablishing, relying somewhat on Lawrence, uh, the, the notion of. Uh, of due process as the basis for the right to engage, for the right to marry, and that that right to marry includes the uh, the right to marry someone of the same sex. Uh, it's uh, Obergefell um, is somewhat confusing. Uh, I've spent many hours trying to kind of figure out the relationship between due process and equal protection in Obergefell. Um, uh, what, what he does say that can relate to the animus concept is uh, that basically laws that prohibit the states that were prohibiting same-sex marriage the effect of that was to demean or disparage mm-hmm. uh, the groups who were not the people who were not permitted to marry he doesn't use the word animus uh, most but, scholars but all but all but yeah. uh, it, it seems to be primarily concerned with the notion that uh, that if the effect of a selective exclusion from something that's important, in this instance, something that's fundamental, the right to marry, the Supreme Court's said that is a fundamental right uh, in, in a number of cases, uh, if the effect of selectively excluding someone is to, uh, to harm them or to demean them or to disparage them, then that is also unconstitutional. What separates Obergefell a little bit from the traditional animus concept is that Kennedy did not say in Obergefell that the purpose of government in banning same-sex marriage was to disparage or to harm. The effect may have been. He did not go so far as to say uh, that's what you're trying to do. In other words, normal traditional animus doctrine is premised on the idea that government is trying to harm intentionally trying to harm a particular group. And what he said in Obergefell was, well, that's the effect of what's going on. Right. You're subordinating You're subordinating a, a, another group. Well, we're getting or, a long time here, Eric, group. and I definitely want to get to your argument. So the next frontier that we've been hearing a lot about lately is transgender people, and you're concerned about their ban from the military and, and, and how it's relevant to animus doctrine. So please... Absolutely. So I mentioned that in the uh, in, in the summer of 2017, President Trump uh, announced by tweets, three tweets actually, uh, that that transgender individuals were not going to be permitted to serve in the military. And, and if you would permit me, I'll just I'll read the uh, the, the tweets yeah. to you. They're quick. Uh, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. So that's the ban initially. A month later, we actually get something more than a couple of tweets, uh, a presidential memorandum from the White House to the secretaries of defense and homeland security, ordering them to prepare policies that would essentially revert to the, the way the law had been a few years earlier, before the Obama administration allowed transgender persons to serve in the military, uh, and, and basically said, we're going to go back to the way it was. You've got six months to come up with a policy uh, to, to, to accomplish that. 
And sure enough, in, in February of 2018, Secretary, then Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis issued a report uh, and, and basically came up with recommendations. The, the idea was that uh, transgender persons uh, would be disqualified from military service. There are some very small exceptions. So people who had already been serving and who uh, uh, and who were transgender and who were diagnosed with what's called gender dysphoria, which is the basic idea that the uh, the uh, distinction uh, between one's biologically assigned sex and one's gender identity causes uh, uh, difficulty uh, f for that for those people. Um, so it's a kind of a, a mental health concern, frankly. Uh, it basically, discomfort with your biological sex uh, results in significant distress or s difficulty functioning. Mm -hmm. um, those people would be allowed to serve, to continue serving, so long as they received a diagnosis of gender dysphoria um, uh, before the effective date of the ban. Uh, so in essence, uh, transgender members uh, or persons who wanted to serve in the military couldn't have had dysphoria within the prior 36 months if they wanted to join. If they were already in, they had to be willing to serve, quote unquote, in their biological sex, meaning wearing the uniforms of their biological sex rather than their gender identity, uh, meeting the physical fitness standards of their biological sex rather than their gender identity, et cetera. The effect of the, of the uh, recommendations by Secretary of Defense Mattis was that virtually all transgender people, though I cannot say all, there are some pre-existing uh, uh, people serving who, who do meet the exception that are, they're allowed to stay uh, in the military, but nearly all transgender people are excluded from military service. The argument that I made in the article was that one of the primary justifications that the government offered, the Trump administration offered, for excluding transgender persons from military service was unit cohesion. And unit cohesion is this idea in the military, one that has been studied uh, quite a bit and one that is, is certainly uh, significant. Uh, but the idea is that, that uh, disruption in a unit, disrupting the cohesion, the, the kind of morale, the ability to get along, the ability to work together to accomplish a mission, that unit cohesion is, is central to winning wars, to accomplishing the mission of military units, and that the presence of transgender people might disrupt unit cohesion. And what I argue is that that is per se, meaning by itself, animus. And the reason for that is it is doing what the court said in Palmore versus Sadati, we may not do, which is the government can't give effect to private bias and prejudice. What is the government doing when it says you can't serve in the military because your presence in the military might bother some other people who are in the military to the degree that they're not going to be able to do their job effectively? That is the government ratifying or importing private bias, prejudice, stereotype into government action and leading to the exclusion of a particular group of people from something they would otherwise be permitted to do. So that the purpose of that article is to demonstrate that unit cohesion, which by the way, has been used as an argument for centuries by the United States military to exclude people. And it was used to exclude people of color from military service. Of course, uh, black Americans were not allowed to serve in the United States Marine Corps until World War II. Uh, uh, and George Washington initially uh, said uh, black people could not serve in the United States military. Um, unit cohesion has been offered as a basis for excluding groups of people, undesired groups of people, whether people of color, then it was women, then it was homosexual people under various uh, policies excluding homosexual persons from military service that ultimately culminated in Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And ultimately now, today, kind of the, the exclusion du jour is once again using unit cohesion to say, well, we can't have transgender people in the military because if we do, we won't be able to accomplish our mission. Well, you're right, Eric. I saw those arguments or heard those arguments back in the 80s when we were struggling to integrate women into the military. And yet um, we didn't live together. They, they were in a separate barracks, but we trained together. And for the most part, uh, it worked out pretty well. And eventually people adjusted to it. Um, you've been talking- What's interesting is that the, the, uh, the, the, the the uh, Department of Defense had just, within the prior decade, gone through the process of, of s telling Congress that, yes, we could allow homosexual people to serve in the military, and that we'd be able to do that without a disruption to the military uh, effectiveness, and had, in fact, done so. 
And then what precipitated the Obama administration changing the policy and allowing in 2016 transgender people to serve in the military uh, was a, a, a significant study, an outside study and multiple internal studies, which also said, yes, this will involve some, you know, some transition, but uh, people will adapt and overcome. That's what the military has always done. Uh, and so uh, it's interesting because the military's own evidence flies in the face of the Trump administration's suggestion that unicohesion is, is a basis for excluding uh, people who are transgender. Evidence? Facts? I didn't know those were relevant anymore. <laughs> we're, we're all, <laughs> I'm we're, sorry. I'm we're almost, still stuck a few years ago. We're almost, uh, we're almost done, Eric. But one last question. You, up till recently, were teaching young officer candidates at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, how do they feel about this issue? Did you discuss it with them? Are they accepting of transgendered people? I absolutely did discuss it with them. I think the, uh, the overwhelming, uh, first of all, you might be surprised to know that the, the, uh, uh, some of the generation that is uh, uh, currently in college, uh, just doesn't see these issues in the same way that our generation does, uh, not bothered by things in the same way we, um, some of us may be. Uh, and so I did not get from most cadets a strong, uh, uh sense that there was going to be a big problem in allowing, uh, uh, transgender people to serve in the military, just like there hadn't been a problem in allowing, uh, uh, people of homosexual sexual orientation to serve in the military. Uh, not everybody likes it, of course. Some people have personal objections to it. But from a professional military officership standard, uh, I did not, just speaking anecdotally about my interactions with cadets, uh, did not get a, a strong uh, objection. There are, of course, just as there were with repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, practical questions like, okay, what does this person have to do to meet their physical fitness standards? Right. Or where do they sleep? Or what kind of accommodations do we need to make for for showering? But you know what? Everybody the the military, always, military always figures that out in the end. We're just about out of time. Absolutely so does. What's, what, again, is the title of your article, and where can people get it? So the article is uh, in the Penn State Dickinson Law Review. Uh, in, uh, it was uh, published last year, and the title of the article is Fire Aim Ready, and that's a, a, uh, uh, a nod towards the kind of backwards, uh, you just alluded to, the notion that facts and evidence and argument came after the uh, ban rather than in, in front of it. Uh, Fire Aim Ready, Militarizing Animus, Unit Cohesion, and the Transgender Ban. Well, Eric Merriam of the University of Central Florida, thank you for sharing that with us today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, appearing on your show and the opportunity to talk about this important subject. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to Eric Merriam of the University of Central Florida, formerly of the U.S. Air Force Academy, for his very enlightening discussion about the transgender ban in our military. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephant. Check them out on SoundCloud. My name is Stuart Harris. And remember, you are a part of the American experiment, even if you are transgender. 